So we are studying the Sermon on the Mount. And last Sunday during the snowpocalypse, we had pretty good uh, attendance for that. Everybody wanted to get out of the house. Um, I talked about anger. I talked about anger and, and resentment and stress. And, and I want to say just a couple more words on that topic before I push ahead this morning. Jesus said, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And then remember what he said. He said, that if you're upset with somebody, you need to go to them and you need to work it out which is something that we often don't do in our culture. We talk about them, we talk around them, we don't go talk to them. Um, Aristotle had a great quote one time. Aristotle said, anybody can become angry, that's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree, and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power. And that is not easy. And Aristotle was right. You know, we're moving into a, a, another election year, in case you haven't noticed. Iowa, New Hampshire is over. And election season brings out a lot of emotions, a lot of anger in people. But I have a challenge this morning for all of us, myself included. As we move ahead in this year, I want you to find people that you encounter. Maybe they have different politics from you. Maybe they have a different candidate from you. And I want you to talk to them. And, and I want you to hear what they have to say. I want you to listen to them and, and not get mad. Listen to them and don't lose your temper. We all need practice in doing that because our world needs more of that. And we're all gonna have that chance <laughs> in the coming months because it's an election year. And so I put that challenge out because anger is not something that just one type of person or one group of people deals with. We all deal with it. And the question is not, will we get angry? The question is, how do we handle our anger? How do we manage our, our anger? Today, we're moving forward in the Sermon on the Mount from anger to the part where Jesus talks about lust. And to be honest with you, there aren't a lot of sermons out there on lust. Um, so I'm glad you came to church this morning. Um, hear what I have to say. Uh, I'm here to challenge you, not take your fun away. L lust is one of those topics that, that makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable, and it should. Back in 2016, almost eight years ago, my uh, younger brother, John, he's here somewhere, um, there he is, <laughs> he got engaged. And um, and I was honored, John asked me to be his best man. And, and so what that means is, you get to plan the guy's trip, also known as the bachelor party, right? So here I am, minister of a church in charge of the bachelor party. Ask John what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Las Vegas, wanted to go to Miami, wanted to go fishing. No, he said he wanted to do something that he loves. He wanted to rent a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Georgia, one of his favorite spots, and go spend some, some quality time with some of his, his close friends. And so that's, that's what we did. We went to Blue Ridge, that area. We rafted the Ocoee River. We tubed the Tacoa River. We cooked out. We watched football. And for the most part, it was a pretty tame weekend. I mean, it was a pretty tame weekend. There's no, for the most part, right? We had a lot of fun. But there were eight guys on this particular trip. Five of us were married. Two were engaged. One was single but had a girlfriend. And it was interesting to hear from the guys who had been married what their advice to the groom was going to be. We heard everything from, John, what are you thinking? To, it's the best thing ever. We heard everything from, way to go, John, giving up your freedom for the rest of your life, 
to marriage is a really wonderful thing. It's interesting when guys give advice over marriage, right? It's just all over the place. But the truth is, we live in a culture where the divorce rate is right around 50%. Might be a little bit under, might be a little bit over. And therapists will tell you that many of the marriages that do last of those, many of them are not healthy. Some of them are simply living parallel lives. Now over time, here's what I think happens. People stop investing in their marriage. Then kids come along and that's a great blessing, but kids tend to dominate. And the couples stop making time for each other. Many marriages have ended because couples stop making each other a priority. And so at Woodmont, we've always done whatever we can to try to support marriages and families. That's why we have Daystar here right now for one more week. We wanna give you that resource to be good parents, to be good husbands and wives. But part of raising children, I think, involves nurturing your marriage, making it a priority. Most problems come up in marriage because they get put on cruise control. It gets neglected. It becomes an afterthought. So here comes Jesus. You've heard that it was said, need some water for this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anybody who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To which we might respond, Jesus, are you serious? Is that realistic? You know, lust is one of those topics that many of us would just assume not discuss. I can see you squirming out there a little bit. I mentioned a book to you last Sunday, Andy Stanley, pastor in Atlanta, wrote this great book called Enemies of the Heart. And in the book, he talks about guilt and anger and greed and jealousy. And then at the very end, he talks about lust. And this is what he says. Lust comes from God. With sex came lust, it was a package deal. But here's what's different about lust. It's an appetite. It's not going away no matter how spiritual or committed you are. Lust isn't a problem that you solve, it's an appetite you manage. Thus the need for self-control. Lust can be focused but not eliminated. It's here for the duration or at least for a, a pretty long time. Here's what research tells us right now. Internet pornography is on the rise and it's become a problem for many people. It's a massive industry in the digital age. If you read the statistics, it's pretty alarming. It's become a drug addiction of sorts. Some will say, well, well, well who can blame us? God's given a sex drive and there's nothing we can do about that. But for parents, this overtly uh, sexual expression that is always out there and always in our face does make raising kids, especially teenagers, and instilling values into them incredibly difficult yet more necessary than it's ever been before. Research tells us that the top consumers of internet pornography are actually teenagers between the ages of 12 to 18. That should scare some of you parents here today. This is happening. It serves us well to take a minute and to ponder what are the real issues that lie under the surface of our culture's obsession with sex? a deep longing for intimacy, a lack of self-confidence, body image, 
power, control, loneliness, a need to be affirmed, acceptance, and yes, lust. These are the issues that often go unaddressed. These are the issues that need to be talked about and dealt with. And, and oftentimes I think the church at large, capital C, has done a very poor job of doing this. Our culture continues to move away from viewing sex as a healthy expression of intimacy and love uh, in a marriage to one where sex is glorified and objectified, used and abused. And as a result, sex loses its luster in marriages and in committed relationships. And I think this is contributing to the high divorce rates, the rising restlessness that we find in marriage. We simply don't seem to understand as a culture what sex is and when it's appropriate. We also know that, that children being born out of wedlock is a big problem. I think it's imperative that, that parents talk to their kids at some point about sex, what it is, what it isn't. And my advice to parents is don't wait too long to have that conversation because if you don't have the conversation, then guess what? The culture's gonna have it for you. And it's happening earlier and earlier and earlier. We say that the things that many of us were exposed to in high school are now being exposed in junior high and middle school. And that seems realistic, it seems about right. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of lust. Adultery starts with lust. Guard your relationship so that damage is not done. You remember the Old Testament, the story of, uh, of King David and Bathsheba? You find it in 2 Samuel. King David was on his roof of his palace and he looked across and he saw this beautiful woman Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop and, 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 and she was married, but David didn't care. He sent for her, they slept together, she conceived. If you continue reading the passage, you know that David's affair with Bathsheba is only the beginning. Once he finds out she's pregnant, he finds out who her husband is, Uriah the Hittite. He has him put on the front lines of battle so he's killed. And then David gets to marry Bathsheba. So in this situation, what you have is adultery, which leads to an unplanned pregnancy, which then leads to a passive murder, but it all started with lust. And so Jesus says, beware of lust. William Barclay, great biblical scholar, when he's talking about this passage in Matthew uh, chapter five, he says, Jesus is not speaking of the natural normal desire, which is part of human instinct and human nature. He says, according to the literal meaning of the Greek word, the man who is condemned here is the man who looks at a woman with the deliberate intention of lusting after her. The man who is condemned is the man who deliberately uses his eyes to awaken his lust. The man who looks in such a way that passion is awakened and desire is deliberately stimulated. So Barclay's basically saying, of course, we're gonna notice people if they're good looking. Of course, we will notice people if they are attractive, but, but that's not the problem. What we cannot do is send messages, either verbal or nonverbal, that are inappropriate and can lead us into a compromising position or situation. But Jesus isn't done here. He takes it a step further. Is Jesus right? He's gonna make you uncomfortable. Here he goes. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members 
than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now clearly this is what we call hyperbole. I don't think Jesus is being literal here because we'd all be walking around without hands and eyes, right? But Jesus is talking about boundaries and decisions. He's saying pay attention to the situations and the circumstances that cause you to stray. Don't put yourself in them. If you have problems when you drink, don't drink so much. If you have problems when you're around certain kinds of people, and stop hanging out with them. If you, if you run with people that don't think twice about cheating on their spouse, then maybe you need some new friends. Guarding your relationship is very important. Adultery is a problem. But for there to be a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, there has to be trust that's built over time. And adultery flies in the face of trust. It tears it apart. It shakes the foundation. Trust has to be built up and then sustained. It's the currency. But the church has a difficult role here. Here's what I mean. The church is called to, to say adultery is wrong and it tears marriages and families apart. But we're also called to be there to help people put their lives back together if it happens. And so I've seen it many times over the years. There is forgiveness, there is redemption. Marriages can be saved. Although there's a lot of pain and hurt and feelings of betrayal, there can be a new beginning. And so it's really important to remember that. There's a lot to salvage in marriage. As a pastor, I've been very uh, interested over the years in the research of a guy named Dr. John Gottman. He teaches out at Washington, University of Washington, and he's done lots of extensive research on couples. And so you remember it's Gottman that said there's four things you gotta avoid in your, in your marriage. He says you need to avoid criticism, defensiveness, uh, stonewalling, and contempt. He calls them the four horsemen. But he wrote this other best-selling book called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And here's what he says are the seven principles. He says number one is you gotta enhance your love map. He says, healthy couples are aware of each other's history and they know what's going on in each other's worlds. And this is what helps them meet each other's needs on a regular basis. The second thing he says is you gotta nurture fondness and admiration because these keys are, are, are the ingredients for healthy lifelong romances. Even as you grapple with each other, other's flaws, make it clear that you admire your spouse. I was having a conversation with Megan this week and I said, do you think that just generally speaking, husbands are appreciated for all that they do? And I really meant men, right? And she looked at me and she said, do you think that wives are appreciated for all that they do? But that's not what I was talking about here. <laughs> there has to be gratitude, there has to be admiration. The third thing he says is turn towards each other. When you get upset, don't turn away, turn towards each other, work it out. The fourth thing is let your partner influence you. Find common ground, listen to them, they know you well. The fifth is solve your solvable problems. 
We all have solvable problems and perpetual problems. The solvable problems can be solved. Where are we going to go to dinner? Where are we going to spend Thanksgiving? What are we going to do for spring break? The perpetual problems are tied to your personalities, and they will keep coming up and keep coming up. That's why they're perpetual. So you solve your solvable problems, and you talk about the perpetual problems. The sixth thing he says is overcome gridlock. And gridlock happens in marriage when they have unrealized dreams or expectations. And so in a healthy marriage, partners incorporate each other's goals and hopes and try to prevent disappointment. And the last thing Gottman says is create shared meaning. Find things to do that you both love to do and that you can do together and create shared meaning because you'll enjoy it. Raising children creates shared meaning. Family trips, volunteering, but it's good for couples to have things that they do together that they love. Now, I think what all this points to, and again, I'd lift up John Godman. I've talked about him over the years because he's really good, but healthy relationships and healthy marriages are essential to our happiness and well-being. That's what we were designed for. That's why God put us here. Um, but I'm gonna leave you today with what I think are some of the most important traits or characteristics of healthy, I say marriages, but I'll also say relationships because not everybody is in a marriage. The first one is honesty and trust. If you tell the truth, you have nothing to worry about. And remember, trust is built over time and it's the currency of relationships. It takes a long time to build it up, but a short time to tear it down. The second trait is respect and mutual support which includes being attentive to each other's needs. Each person brings unique gifts and qualities into a relationship. Nobody is the total package. Everybody has their shortcomings and flaws. So we have to find ways to respect our spouses and significant others, which means accept, accepting them for who they are and not for what we want them to be. You remember that quote? Um, women marry men to change them. Men marry women hoping they'll never change. You remember that? Everybody's got flaws and shortcomings. Third, negotiation and fairness. You know, in any relationship, conflict comes up. It's inevitable, it's part of life. But the way we handle conflict is what matters, the way we talk to each other, the way that we work through our differences, the way that we overcome setbacks and disappointments. Fourth, non-threatening behavior. Or to put this another way, low levels of drama whenever possible. The Bible you know, talks about anger. We talked about anger last week, but angry outbursts can be a love buster. And it's important to talk uh, and, and find a way to talk where both people can get their feelings out there because when threats are made and, and accusations are made, emotions run high. Being calm is always better. Lastly, intimacy and love. And Jay read that passage from the Apostle Paul where he says, love is patient, love is kind. You know the words, that's love. Love's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Remember what Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Love has to be put into action. It's not just a noun. You have to do it. You have to talk about it. You have to be proactive. But if you can pay attention to these qualities, 
then you can build a marriage and a relationship that has a healthy foundation and then pay attention to what Jesus is saying about lust. He talks about it for a reason. There's nothing more important in life than building a healthy marriage, raising a good family, surrounding yourself with friends that have the same values as you, and then reminding yourself along the way, I have to make this my priority. Amen.